Which Italian tenor was deemed the prince of tenors? Here's a hint. He also sang with Renata Tabaldi in the Met's 1966 production of Ponchielli's La Gioconda. Find out more on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Opera Duos Part 3. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Italian tenor Franco Corelli was called the Prince of Tenors, and his partner in that La Gioconda, soprano Renata Tibaldi, was known as La Voce d'Angelo, the voice of an angel. I'm Naomi Baratera, and today we have the final installment of our opera duo series. Here is Met Radio commentator Iris Siff talking about opera collaborations that kept audiences wanting more. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Um, Good morning. I have to turn on the contraption so I can play the music. So this is our final boohoo um, foray into uh, famous opera duos. And uh, as we began our first one by stepping back in time and listening to a bit of the incredible Enrico Caruso, We're going to do that again, but this time, first time his partner was a baritone, Tito Rufo. This time his partner will be a soprano of remarkable virtues who held a place in both the German and the Italian wing at the Met from 1899 to 1917, racking up 496 performances of 26 roles, plus solo outings and concerts, plus four Verdi Requiems, plus one Messiah, and she was Johanna Gotsky. Gotsky made her operatic debut at the ripe old age of 17 in Germany, and then at 26 at the Met, she sang with a huge voice of great beauty and flexibility, and she sang the most demanding Wagner roles with great ease, swinging also into the heavier Verdi repertoire, most often Aida, and most often with Caruso. Gee, what a pity. During the First World War, Gotsky was obliged to uh, withdraw from the Met because of anti-German sentiment, and despite stories that she was deported under suspicion, the truth is that she waited out the war living in New York and New Hampshire. We're going to hear her in the uh, final half of the final scene of Verdi's Aida, partnered by her frequent stage partner, Enrico Caruso. We only have time for Oterra Dio, the final part of the duet, but I encourage you to seek out the whole thing, which they recorded complete in 1909, 109 years ago. Godsky's beautifully arched phrases and ravishing pianissimos are easily audible, even through the, uh, the acoustic horn. And uh, Caruso has seamless legato, gorgeous modulated tone, and an impeccable sense of style. This really shows the level of Verdi singing from the two of them uh, and at the level at the Met after Caruso arrived in 1903. Now, when he did arrive, some of the old-timers complained at first that he lacked the elegance of the great Jean Doresky, who sadly refused to get involved in this newfangled medium of recording. Otherwise, we'd be listening to him as well. No such complaint about Caruso's refinement can be made in terms of the evidence in this Aida duet uh, or many other excerpts he committed to disc for his master's voice. So we're going to listen to Johanna Gatsky and Enrico Caruso setting the bar rather high for Verdi singing in Oterra Dio. Listen, the very end of the duet, they hold an incredible B-flat pianissimo together, and it's quite, quite stunning what they can do. So... Here's our first selection. Oh, 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 oh,
In our second session, we looked at the legendary pairing of Kirsten Flagstad and Lawrence Melchior, the Wagnerian duo that saved the Met's box office after the, in the aftermath of the Great Depression and made Wagner's operas the hottest ticket in town. Flagstad and Melchior may be the Wagnerian duo of legend at the Met, but there were others. Melchior himself teamed up with Helen Traubel in the 40s after uh, after Flagstad was summoned back to Norway by her husband during the war, uh, and we lost some of the greatest years of her prime. Other great Wagnerian sopranos followed, however, and we're going to be hearing two of them in a row now. Uh, our next selection comes from the 1952 Bayreuth season and is a small portion of the love duet from Tristan and Isolde, uh, as time limitations prevent us from hearing the entire 22 minutes. <laughs> These performances starring Martin Myrtle and Raymond Vinay became the stuff of legend as well. Martin Myrtle was among the preeminent Wagnerian sopranos uh, and most compelling singing actresses of the 20th century. She was celebrated for her highly individualized interpretations, her exceptional acting ability, intense stage presence, her beauty, and her rich, sexy voice. Uh, Myrtle's vocal and career peak coincided with the recording we're going to be hearing today from the early 50s. By the end of the decade, the voice had become somewhat worn, but she continued to sing, in fact, uh, and at the end was singing character roles like the Countess in Pete Dom uh, until the age of 87. Tenor Ramon Vinay began as a baritone, and his voice has a dark chocolate color he sang with great intensity and passion. Toscanini chose Vinay to be the Otello on his Otello broadcast, which became the RCA Victor recording uh, of uh, Otello. He also sang the first uh, ever, he sang the role in the first ever live from the Met telecast in 1948. Licia Albanese was his Desdemona, and get ready for this, the kinescope was lost. <laughs> <laughs> 
he returned to baritone roles at the end of his career, and he was only one of two singers to perform both Otello and Iago during his career. Although God knows Mr. Domingo isn't finished yet. <laughs> Vinay sang 21 Tristans at the Met with such partners as Myrtle and Birgit Nilsson. And while Myrtle only treated the Met audiences to three Isoldas, but they were incandescent. Now here's a small portion of the famous love duet featuring this unforgettable pairing of tonal beauty and emotional intensity. And the conductor here is Herbert von Karajan, uh, and he and the two singers create an incredible spell in this duet.
Yeah, it's a very dreamy. Uh, the, this Tristan, by the way, is available. Uh, it's a fantastic performance. It used to be in horrific sound, and then it resurfaced because Bayreuth performances generally are in fantastic sound. Those Germans. And uh, if you hear things from the same era in La Scala, they're terrible, distortion and awful. And uh, exactly the same time in Bayreuth, they're impeccable. They sound like studio recordings. This one became available in good sound. You can find a used one on Amazon, I'm sure, for Bupkis. So um, Astrid Varnay was born in Sweden of Hungarian parents who worked there as singers. Her mother was a, a noted lyrical oratora. Her father was a spinto tenor. Opera was the family business. And Varnay grew up backstage at the world's opera houses. During one performance, in fact, she was swaddled in the lower drawer of the dressing room chest of drawers that belonged to the young Kirsten Flagstad. The family moved to New York, where her father died suddenly at the age of 35 in 1924. Two years later, her mother married the tenor Fortunato de Angelis, and the family settled in New Jersey. Varnay had been studying to be a pianist, but at 18, she decided to switch and become a singer. And she had intensive vocal lessons with her mother. A year later, Flagstad arranged for her to start preparing roles with the Metropolitan Opera staff conductor and coach, Hermann Weigert. Uh, and you remember I said last week he was the one who auditioned Flagstad and fell off his bench when she sang the Hoyo to Host. <laughs> By the age of 22, uh, Varnay knew Hungarian, German, English, French, and Italian, and her repertoire consisted of uh, 15 leading dramatic soprano roles, 11 of which were Wagnerian roles. She made a sensational Met debut on the 6th of December 1941 on a broadcast performance, singing Zieglinde in Wagner's Die Valkyrie, no pressure, substituting for the indisposed Lottie Lehmann. Uh, with no rehearsal. This was her first appearance in a leading role anywhere, and it was a triumph. Six days later, she replaced the ailing Helen Traubel as Brunhilde in the same opera. Varnay and Weigert became closer, and they were married in 1944, although he was 28 years her senior. They had a loving and devoted marriage until his death in 1955. Varnay sang at the Met until 1956, when it became apparent that the a pretty new general director, Rudolf Bing, showed not very much interest in her. So she went off to sing in Europe. She was already uh, based in Munich, and she uh, sang all over Germany and was worshipped at Bayreuth and considered a goddess in Munich. Uh, in the mid-1980s, well, in 1974, she returned to the Met as Kostelnitschka in, in Yenufa, and she did Madame Begbeck in Mahagoni, and then she sang mezzo roles like Clitumnestra in Electra, uh, and in the mid-1980s, uh, these character roles, finally her career wound down with these character roles. She's wonderful in a film of Electra with Leonie Riesenick uh, as Electra. Um, during her Met tenure, she racked up 200 performances of 24 roles. Her interpretations were so intense that once Wieland Wagner, when he was questioned about why he didn't use much scenery, uh, in his productions at Bayreuth, he said, who needs a tree? I have Varnay. <laughs> at Bayreuth, Hans Hotter was the preeminent Wotan. Hotter sang 39 times at the Med. He was paired with Varnay only once as Wotan and Brunhilde in De Valkyrie, despite the scores of times they sang it together in Europe. Uh, Hotter was a real, uh, combined a huge emotional intensity with stunning voice. He taught the role of Wotan to James Morris. We're going to hear this famous father-daughter pairing in a fragment of the lengthy, it's Wagner, Act 3, final scene from Valkyrie, recorded live at the Bayreuth Festival, 1953, conducted by Clemens Krauss. Uh, of their one Met outing together as Wotan and Brunhilde, Musical America said the two long scenes between Brunhilde and Wotan provided the unforgettable moments of the evening. For Miss Varnay and Mr. Hotter brought to their characterizations a compassion and nobility that profoundly stirred the listener. Oh, so schnell, 
That whets our appetite for the ring next season. Uh, it's obvious what's so astonishingly beautiful about her. And what I find so touching about Hotter is the sense of regret in every phrase that Wotan utters, not just anger, but so much deep sadness. But now, as they say, for something entirely different, uh, while dramatic, scenic, and psychological revelations were happening at Bayreuth, at the Met and other opera capitals, it was business as usual, with good old-fashioned stand-up and sing opera. Call it old-fashioned, call it mannered, call it what you will, but a sampling of that style from our next duo still raises the goosebumps and the blood pressure. In our first session, we looked at the partnership of Renata Tabaldi and Mario del Monaco, uh, also important to the diva's artistic life, where her many appearances with the thrilling Franco Corelli of the enormous voice and matinee idol looks. Tibaldi and Corelli sang unforgettable performances at the Met and elsewhere of Tosca, Adriana Le Couvreur, Andreas Chenier, Forza del Destino. Uh, 
This is last that we'll catch a glimpse of in this film performance from 1958 in Naples. Leonora and Elvaro Alvaro have only one duet together in this opera and are then tragically separated for four interminable acts <laughs> by that Forza del Destino of the title. Tibaldi and Corelli are caught here in their respective primes, giving their all to this uh, fateful attempted elopement that causes an accidental murder of her father and changes their destinos forever. Francesco Molinari Pradelli is the conductor of this Act One duet of Forza.
hilarious, yeah. But you know, I bet if you were there, you'd be thrilled to death. Uh, Corelli got around. All the divas loved singing with him. Well, almost all the divas loved singing with him. He shared the stage many times with Maria Callas, with Tibaldi, Leontine Price, Giulietta Simeonato, countless others. But there was one diva in whom Corelli met his match and then some vocally. And theirs was more a contest than a companionship. And audiences ate it up. For a thrilling decade at the Met, Franco Corelli and Birgit Nilsson competed in performances of Turandot, Aida, and Tosca. And although theirs was a rivalry, it was not like the Callas Tibaldi rivalry because everyone wanted both of them to win and to give everything they had trying. The wonderful thing about Nilsson was the effortlessness with which she competed. High seas flew out of her throat like strings of pearls dropping off a string. Stories abound concerning their relationship, and all of them center around Turandot. I, I was treated to lunch with Birgit when I was singing in the Covent Garden Festival, and she was doing her memories evening, and she told me all her Turandot stories, which were standard issue, I know, but it was great hearing them directly from the horse's mouth. Uh, un, uh, unlike Birgit, you know, Franco Corelli was very nervous and Nilsson loved to relate how he would secrete a sponge in his tights uh, in, the, in, in the crotch, and not to increase the size of his manhood, but so that he could turn up stage, take out the sponge, and moisten his throat before high notes. Uh, he took the veil from Turandot's face, turning it upstage again. He would wipe his nose on it. <laughs> Birgit was unperturbed. And when he appeared to kiss her hand during a curtain call, but actually bit it, Nielsen called general manager Rudolf Bing the next day and said, Mr. Bing, I am sorry I cannot sing my next performance. I have rabies. <laughs> Let's listen to this uh, superhuman vocal duo in the riddle scene from Puccini's Turndo. This was recorded live at the Met uh, March 4th, 1961. Leopold Stokowski is the conductor. Oh, 
hardly seems anything could be more exciting than those two, but fasten your seatbelts. One of the most thrilling collaborations at the Met uh, was that of Leonie Brzezinik and George London, uh, in particularly the Fliegende Hollander, the Flying Dutchman. The intensity of the onstage relationship of those two was unrivaled, and they brought their interpretations from Bayreuth to the Met, fortunately, in the early 60s. Uh, we're going to listen from a legendary 1959 Bayreuth Dutchman with those two in the leads. We're going to hear the finale of the opera, perhaps more thrillingly sung than ever in history. London's Dutchman, pitch black of voice with searing intensity, unmatched in the role, believes he's been betrayed by Zenta, who's sworn fidelity Rizenik, as Zenta desperately tries to convince him that she's remained true to him and tries to keep him from resuming his eternal sailing searching for fidelity. She finally hurls herself into the sea after him as his ship departs. Reasonick truly sounds like one who is transcending life to follow her destiny as she swears to be true unto death, her superhuman upper register soaring effortlessly and endlessly. This is conducted by Wolfgang Savalisch. Ein Weib, das treu bis hin den Tod mir hält. Wohl hast du Treue mir genommen, doch vor dem Ewigen noch nicht. Sie verhalten mich, denn wisst ihr, welches das geschieht, das jene trifft, die mir die Treue brechen. The top of a, you know, you hear tops like uh, Nielsen and Riesenick, and you wonder what has happened. Maybe it was in the water at that time. You see, Bjerling and Zinka Milanov made legendary recordings of Il Trovatore and Cavalleria Rusticana and Tosca and Aida. 
and appeared together on the Met stage many times. Zinko was a rather imperious presence. I remember going backstage for an autograph after an Andrea Chenier at the old Met when I was a teenager and actually hearing a fan say to her, Madame Milanov, your voice is like silver, to which she replied, no, gold. <laughs> uh, as a young standee with no budget whatsoever, I was regularly consigned to the family circle standing room, but one night I was given a ticket to the orchestra uh, by two patrons who had to leave suddenly before the performance of Simone Bocanegra. And until that night, I had never seen Zinka up close. The curtain went up, and there she was, her back to the audience in a giant red gown, uh, clearly visible underneath was a heavily boned corset. And she wore what could only be described as a matching red dunce cap and veil. When she rotated to the front, I was treated to the sight of, of her uh, face with um, this incredible bouffant hairdo, uh, all these applied beauty marks, and two sets of blue beaded eyelashes that were batting to the music. And yet when she began to sing, she was suddenly beautiful. Uh, this enormous voice poured out of her, transforming her into something amazing. And it's difficult, even now when I am now much older than Zinka was, then to think of Zinka as ever having been young. And yet, uh, we are going to listen to her at 32 with the amazing young Yussi Burling at the Met in 1940 in the love duet from Verdi's Ballo in Mascara. And the conductor is Ettore Panizza.
I'm going to leave you with a little bonbon. So we all leave with a smile. One duo we listened to a few weeks ago, uh, Kalas and Gobi, famous for their tragic roles, even their sardonic roles, like Scarpia and Medea, teamed up in 1956 for a rare Kalas excursion into comedy uh, in the Barber of Seville. And uh, it was felt uh, at those La Scala performances that Kalas, not exactly known for her sense of fun, had a rather heavy hand with the antics. Well, perhaps the diva was not a comedian, but she was a genius. And as EMI had decided to record the opera with this duo the following year, she completely restudied the role for a year. And uh, one year later came back and created a Rosina that stunned everyone with its perfect balance of the character's determination and charm. And it was also beautifully sung. So here for a little farewell, to our opera duos are Maria Callas and Tito Gobi in the recitative, and this is a lesson in recitative, uh, and duet Dunque Io Son from Rossini's The Barber of Seville, Barbieri di Sevilla. Alceo Galliera is the conductor. That concludes our opera duos, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed sharing it with you. Many thanks to Ira Sif for taking us on this wonderful musical journey. I wish I was there to witness these extraordinary performances. If you are looking for more opera this summer, be sure to check out the Met's Live in HD Encore screenings. For more information, check out metopera.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.